turn together to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. This will be uh, our last look at Revelation until September. We're finishing off the, the last letter uh, in, um, in this section. Uh, next Lord's Day, as I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, Reverend Burke will be with us, and he will have the services in Cape Traverse and the two services here in, the, uh, in Disable. And Dr. Winnick will have the two following weekends thereafter. So it just gives you a breakdown of what our services look like going forward. But this morning, let's read together verses 14 to the end of the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, uh, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garment and white garments so that you may uh, clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, we come to Laodicea, our last letter, and Laodicea as a, a city was quite a sizable city. It was about a, a, a city of about 30,000 people. It was a place where uh, there were many medical innovations. And that's why he makes reference to the, the eye salve uh, later on in the letter. But it was also a textile uh, uh, city. Uh, again, Jesus incorporates all of these things in the letter as he tries to make those connections with the church itself. Um, it was uh, located about 45 miles southeast of the last church we looked at, and that was Philadelphia. And uh, the church uh, is unique in that it, it has nothing in and of itself to commend itself. Uh, there were some churches where Jesus said some good things and, and some bad things. There was a mixture, but here there's nothing good to be said of the church in Laodicea. They are uh, Jesus uses some of his strongest language in all of these letters uh, to address the church in Laodicea. And uh, uh, rather than being complacent, I think it's important for us to hear one of the leading uh, evangelical lights in the last uh, uh, 50 years in the Western world, and that's John Stott. As he, as he uh, comments on this church, he says, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church at the beginning of the 21st century 
than this. It describes vividly the respectable, nominal, rather sentimental, skin-deep religiosity which is widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. And so those are John Stott's, um, uh, that's his estimation of uh, the the, the church as we see it around the world. Of course, that's not a, a, a universal declaration of what the church is like. But the church in the West, in many ways, can be characterized in that way. Jesus comes to them with these words of introduction, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. As I said, Jesus uses very strong language in this uh, letter as he diagnoses the problem of the church in Laodicea. Sometimes when we hear strong language, and we've heard some strong language through these letters, uh, we are tempted to recoil. And uh, we have this estimation of ourselves, like this is beyond us. And that what does this really have to do with me? And that he is, as, as Jesus is speaking with very strong language, we re- need to remember that this is language spoken in his love. The very fact that we have the word of God with us this morning is a token of God's love for us. These these are his words to us, given as he gave in the Old Testament, sending prophets to a people who were idolatrous and backslidden and all the rest of it. Yet God kept on sending the prophets, sending his word, uh, that the people might be broken, that they might be healed and turned. And in that, he has to use some very strong language. Just as any doctor who's worth his salt will honestly diagnose the situation of someone. You don't want to go to a doctor who will tell you what you want to hear, do you? You don't want that kind of doctor. It doesn't matter what they say to you. It doesn't matter what your diagnosis. You don't want to be lied to. You want to have the truth told to you. And Jesus, being the great physician, the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation, he created us. All things were made by him. He is faithful and true. He knows exactly where you and I are this morning. He knows you. He can see you where you're sitting. His, as we saw before, His eyes of fire are able to penetrate into our very souls. And so no one knows us better than Jesus. Even ourselves, no one knows us better than Jesus. And that's why he is introduced at the beginning of this book the way he is. One with eyes of fire. And yet, as I said different times, Uh, I think we would run a mile from one another if we could see what was really in our heart and mind, what we were really thinking. We would have nothing to do with one another. And yet Jesus, it's, it's something that incites the pity of Jesus, the love of Jesus, rather than him running from us. It draws us, it draws him in toward us. This is what he's doing with the churches. Rather than giving a blanket condemnation, he is loving them by saying I know you I know your works 
My eyes pierce into your very hearts and souls. I walk among the candlesticks. I'm very familiar with you. Friends, what a privilege that is for us this morning. Like the psalmist who said, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You search me and you know me. And rather than that being an occasion for David to run from the Lord, it causes him to say, Lord, search me all the more. And know my anxious thoughts. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. That's exactly what we saw over the last number of weeks. Jesus is searching them. He's diagnosing. He's seeking to lead them in the way everlasting. The eternal, everlasting path. And that's what he desires for us here today. And so this is how he introduces himself. And these, this introduction itself is a, a comfort to us. Just as we were singing, when Paul was saying to Timothy, who was perhaps timid or intimidated by people in his congregation, or whatever the occasion was with Timothy, he needed to know that the gospel that he was preaching was true, because the word of God... All Scripture is breathed out by God. And we need to hear that, especially in these days when we are told to compromise and say this is not the Word of God, or we need to reinterpret it in some way to suit the culture. And we say absolutely not. And we speak into that the way Paul did, and the way John did, and the way Jesus speaks into the church of Laodicea here. It is the Gospel It's the unchanging gospel. It is the eternal gospel. It is the faith once delivered to the saints. And we in the 21st century have no uh, 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 right in any way to reinterpret that gospel uh, in the least, but to hold fast. He, He says here, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now a little background to what Jesus is saying here. The city of Laodicea uh, was a city that needed to have its water piped in. If you can imagine, uh, uh, this disabled as a city, and quite a large sizable city of 30,000 people, and having to get your water piped in. Forget about the fact that there's a river down there. Uh, just bear with me. And you, got it, you have to get your water piped in. And it was taken in by aqueducts. And by the time it left the cool springs of a, a particular city and got to Laodicea, the water had become warm. And on its way through the aqueduct, picked up all sorts of minerals on the way. All sorts of things on, on the way to getting to the city. And so the water was not only warm, but it was also corrupted. And like all the other churches, Jesus uses whatever is prominent in that city, maybe problematic in that city, to then say to the church, you know what? You are like this. You are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. And contaminated, as, as was the oftentimes with the problem with 
the, the water that arrived there in Laodicea as well. And so they were neither one nor the other. Some people see this hot and cold as a kind of a way of describing people who are either completely against the gospel or people who are completely for the gospel. And uh, I don't think that's what he's talking about there. And so sometimes we want that. It's easier to deal with people that you know where they stand. You say, oh, I, that, that person definitely knows the Lord, is on fire for the Lord. That person, they, they tell it like it is, and they're upfront and honest, but they have no interest in the gospel whatsoever. They don't even believe in God. They, one is hot, one is cold. And uh, sometimes we think of it in those terms, but I think more uh, appropriately, Jesus is talking about the usefulness of hot and cold. That there is more usefulness in hot boiling water. We can make tea, we can make coffee, we can wash ourselves, we can do all those things with hot water. We, it's, it's used in healing and, and purifying and sterilizing and all the rest of it. And then cold water, it brings refreshment. And it can preserve uh, food and so on. So it, it, it's in that sense where Jesus is saying, I wish that there was some measure of usefulness in you. We can applaud hot water. We can applaud cold water for their various uh, ways in which they can be used. But tepid water is different. We know what it's like having a tepid cup of tea or if someone were to pass you a cup of coffee downstairs. By the way, there's lunch downstairs after the service this morning and you're all welcome to stay behind for that. I, I knew I'd miss something. Uh, but if someone were to pass you a cup of instant coffee and the water wasn't even hot enough to dissolve the coffee crystals, you would say, I don't want this. Uh, or, you know, it was not enough to draw the tea out of the tea bag. Say, no, no, it's got to be hot. Or give me a, a, an ice, ice cap cappuccino or iced coffee or iced tea or something, uh, but not something tepid. And Jesus is saying that this is how he sees the church there. And he doesn't draw back in the language that he uses. I will spit you out of my mouth. Wow, that's pretty strong language that Jesus is using. When we think of Jesus, think of him in his ministry and so on, and how he dealt tenderly and kindly with people. We also saw Jesus dealing very severely with others. Like the scribes and the Pharisees who were very complacent in their faith. Who were not projecting the true gospel, the true faith of Israel. They were projecting a more self-satisfied religion that looked inward rather than looking outward to the objective grace of God. And this is what disgusts Jesus here. What what causes him revulsion. You can imagine someone making you a, 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 or you making someone a drink of something, or you make them a meal of some kind, and in your presence they spit it out. They throw it up. And you would be shocked. You would be disgusted. All sorts of uh, things you would feel when you saw that. And that. Yet this is the language that Jesus is using here. It's a dead kind of religion. It was what was, uh, uh, was plaguing uh, other churches when Jesus says, you are dead. Or the, 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 the church in Ephesus, you have lost your first love. 
And so here, Jesus is putting it across in very uh, strong terms. That's not the kind of devotion that he wants. It's not what it means to be alive unto God. To have a living faith, a productive faith, a faith that is useful in, in terms of its praises to God and its service to others. But for the church in Laodicea, it was a very unproductive because they had lost the gospel. They had lost the gospel. Whenever Paul tells people to do something, gives them an imperative, whether it's husbands loving your wives or wives and husbands and so on, children obeying your parents, what, what kind of person you are at work and so on, what does he do? When he wants them to give to missions, what does he do? He highlights the gospel. He brings the gospel in. And Paul knew that that was enough. They didn't need more cajoling than that. He, though he was rich, for your sake became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. Think of the gospel. And because they had lost that, They had become tepid. They had lost their usefulness. They weren't glorifying God with their lives and with their worship. They were self-satisfied. They were glorifying themselves more than, than Jesus himself. Jesus is looking for those, as Paul describes of Apollos, one fervent in spirit. Or Epaphras, as he describes in Colossians 4, who was always struggling on the behalf of the Colossians in his prayers. I bear him witness that he worked hard for you, for those in Laodicea. And he did so at the cost of his own health. So Laodicea even had a witness in Epaphras of someone who was fervent in the Spirit. And that is the kind of heart that Jesus is looking for. That is, that is fruitful. Fruitful in prayer. Fruitful in worship. Fruitful in serving God. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Of love, joy, peace, and so on. There's a usefulness that comes from them. Just as water can be useful as hot and cold. Keep on loving one another, Peter says earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. A fervency. The, in our bulletin, as I said to the folks in Cape Traverse this morning, uh, uh, Candy uh, doesn't consult with me on, the, on what she puts in, but it's oftentimes so relevant. And this morning, uh, she includes there the uh, uh, story of Joni Erickson. And uh, Joni Erickson describes uh, what drives her. She says on the back page there, if you want to look, the truth is that I don't have the strength. I still wake up every morning needing God desperately. Like David, I often confess I am poor and needy. Then she says later on, it's the noble cause of Christ to which I've dedicated myself for decades. And I can't think of anything that gives me more joy Yet as I reach the milestone of 55 years as, of quadriplegia, this is, again, if you don't know the backstory, at the age of 19, Joni uh, uh, was diving. She had a diving accident. She was 
paralyzed as a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. And she goes on, not to mention two bouts of cancer, severe breathing issues, COVID-19 and chronic pain. I hold tightly to Acts 20:24. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That's what it is to be fervent in spirit. That in even the worst of times, you know, what would cause such a, a, a young woman to make that decision? To have that measure of resolve because she knew that whatever trouble she underwent in this life, it was never going to outshine the glory that Jesus has prepared for her in heaven. And the glory that outshines the opportunity that even in her quadriplegia to serve Jesus and to tell the world about him, that it's not about health. It's not about wealth. It's not about strength or any of these things, but it is having this relationship with God through Jesus, having your sins forgiven. She, she knew she was a sinner. And when we lose sight of that, friends, we lose everything. We start to look inward. We start to become self-congratulatory. But Joni, this young woman, knew that she was a sinner, liable to God's wrath if she did not repent and coming to know that. She was able to be satisfied in her wheelchair. And even now she says that the first thing I'm looking forward to is, yes, walking, but seeing the face of Jesus. Fervent in spirit. On fire for the Lord. Uh, we use that word kind of uh, as a cliche sometimes, and sometimes it's overused, but this is the idea, the idea of fervency, of passion uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ, to burn for him. Did, our, did not our hearts burn within us as we walked along and talked with him? Did our hearts not burn? That's what, that's what it means to have an encounter with Jesus who began at Moses, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he showed unto them all the things in the scriptures concerning himself. They burned. They were men of the burning heart, as one has described it. And so Jesus diagnoses their problems. For I say, you say, I, have, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow, it doesn't stop. First Jesus says he's going to spew them out of his mouth and now describing them in this way. They were a rich city. Very many well-to-do people. It was a, a banking center in Laodicea. And so Jesus takes that and he says, you think you're rich, but you're poor. There are many who are rich, who feel themselves rich in in their works toward God. Looking inward all the time, saying, well, you know, I'm a good citizen. I'm a good neighbor. I'm a, I was a good son, good daughter. I'm a responsible husband or wife. I'm a good churchgoer. 
give well to the church and do all these things. Now that's all fine. But as a basis for salvation, it is nothing. These things are nothing. All our righteousness, says the prophet, is filthy rags. He doesn't say our sins are filthy rags. Well, that's true too. Listen to what he says. He says all your good deeds, all your, what you perceive as righteousness, is as filthy rags before God. How does that sit with us? That just pulls the rug right out from under us, doesn't it? This is where the church in Laodicea were. That's why they became lukewarm, because they said, well, it's not such a big deal. Try harder. Live better. Keep your nose clean. Just do your best. And, there, and with that, they were completely blinded then to Jesus. Blinded to the gospel. And they were completely consumed with how am I living? How am I doing? Uh, you know, how, uh, am I satisfied with myself? Are other people satisfied with me? Friends, the only thing that matters is what does God think of you this morning? What does God think of me this morning? We need to see ourselves through his eyes. And Jesus, when he looks at the church of Laodicea, doesn't see well-dressed, well-to-do, upwardly mobile people. He sees those who, as he says here, are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He sees them as they really are. That's where we must start. And this is why I said at the beginning, God, when Jesus speaks, we need to understand that he's doing so in his love, in his mercy toward us. Just as a doctor would come and say, look, here's the x-ray. And I hate to tell you this, but this is the way it is. Here is what's going on. We don't throw it back in the doctor's face. We don't say he's hateful and narrow. No, we say thank you. And if the one who is faithful and true, the, the amen of God, beginning of God's creation, if he says to you and I, look, this is how I find you, what will you do with it? What will we, what will we do with it? I hope we would have the wisdom to say, Lord, I accept your estimation of me. This is, this is how you see me, therefore it is true. But he doesn't just leave us there, you see. He just doesn't leave us in our, our, our wretchedness. Showing our complete inability to save ourselves or any inability to please God. He doesn't just leave us there. But he says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the, sh and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. What is he speaking about here when he's talking about, I counsel to you to buy uh, a gold refined by fire? Is he saying that our salvation can be bought? That if you give enough to the church, as many people think they can do, you write a big enough check, you're in. The mob does it. All sorts of people do it. Yeah, I lived an awful life, but here's a big, massive check for the church, and away you go. And uh, sometimes they're given the uh, uh, implicit 
assurance uh, that, yes, this will do the trick. But a lot of people do the same on a very low level as well, on an everyday level. But no, we cannot buy our salvation. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the same thing as what we read in Isaiah 55. Ho, all ye that thirst, come by. Uh, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why does he say, why does he say, come and buy without money? How can you buy something without money? Well, in every situation you, you got by trading or by buying or getting a Jesus says, in my economy, you can take, you can buy without price, without money. And he emphasizes it there. And what is this business of gold? Why do you need gold? Because you're poor. He uses this language to describe the gospel riches of redemption and forgiveness. The preciousness of the blood of Jesus. Peter says, you were redeemed not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus as a lamb without spot or blemish. You see what he's saying? You were redeemed not with gold. And that takes in this whole idea of of uh, 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 salvation through an inanimate object or through human effort. Not with those things, he says, but with the precious blood of Jesus. And to have our sins washed away with the blood of Jesus is to partake of that gold that he gives to us. And we receive it freely, without money, without price. Come, buy, and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is what it is, friends, to be rich toward God this morning. And I wonder if you are rich toward God. Are you rich in the things of God? Or are you like the church in Laodicea who's self-satisfied? Say, well, I'm a decent person. No, that's, that's to be rich in yourself. That's not to be rich toward God. Nothing gives God more glory than the coming to Him through Jesus. As the great theologian John Owen said, God is more glorified in us coming to Him through the cross of Jesus Christ than in keeping the whole law. So you can go down that road and try to keep the whole law and you never will, but even if you could, you wouldn't give as much glory to God as the one who comes and says, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. I come to you through the blood. I come to you through the cross, forsaking all else. That's what it is to be rich. To have your sins forgiven, to be justified, to be made right, to be declared innocent before God through faith alone. Saying, Lord, I believe. be rich in him. This is what he said to the church in Smyrna, didn't he? Well, look at what he says. I know your tribulation and your poverty. They were poor in the worldly things. But you are rich. The church in Smyrna, they were poor as church mice, probably because many of them lost their jobs because of the gospel. 
But Jesus says to them, Oh, you are rich. Because they believed, they trusted in Him, they trusted in His salvation. The gospel was front and center in their lives and in their church. Friends, this is, this is what God's economy looks like. And the one who is faithful and true is speaking to you this morning as individuals. And saying, how is it with you? Are you rich toward God? In taking, being washed in the blood which is more, uh, 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 more valuable than gold or silver. To love the word of God. Which as the psalmist says is, is more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey to the taste. That's what it is to be rich toward God. And then, going out from that, to live a life that brings Him glory. Bearing forth the fruit of the Spirit. This is what Jesus says, I counsel you to um, Yes, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. White garments and salve. All these things that your eyes may be healed, that your eyes might be opened. This salve, this medicinal salve that you might be able to see. Now I see. Where I looked at the cross and I saw nothing to attract me. I looked at Jesus and I said, it's just an ancient story. I looked at the word of God and saw it was just a dusty old book. But the salve of God has gone across my eyes. And now I see and behold the beauty of Jesus. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I see that the cross is something to boast in. The cross is something to, uh, to tell others about. It's the very gate into the presence of God. This is what happens when our eyes are opened. This is what John Newton meant. The old slave trader who said, I was blind, but now I see. Why? Because of the amazing grace of God. He was red hot, wasn't he? The amazing grace of God that saved what? A wretch like me. He's he, he could have been pulling it all out of, out of uh, Revelation. Of course, he was, he was preaching from uh, Second Sa- he, he, his, the hymn was based on Second Samuel, but nevertheless, the, a lot of the language is taken is it can be found here in what Jesus is saying. And Newton goes on to write arguably the most famous hymn in the English language, "Amazing Grace," something that we all sing, but not something we all know about. And so he says to them, I counsel you. These are the things that I, uh, 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 I'm drawing your attention to. And what a, what a gracious thing Jesus does. On the one hand, he shows them what their lives are like in and of themselves. In the state that he finds them. And rather than rejecting them as he could do if he wanted to, He counsels them to come to him. He says, look, I've got everything you need. Gold, garments of salvation to wrap you in. Eyes have to open your eyes so that you may see and know and understand. He goes on, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. 
Jesus is presenting himself in the most tenderest of terms here. Sometimes we have a temptation to say that this is simply Jesus speaking to the church as a whole, but I think there's an argument to be made that Jesus is speaking to individuals here uh, when he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens to me, it's very individual, it's very tender. How does Jesus knock? How does Jesus... He calls us through the gospel. The gospel call that goes out to people all over the world. Certainly it's been going out in this church. Certainly it's been going out to many of you from a young and tender age. He's been calling you through the word, through parents and grandparents. Calling you through life circumstances where where you, you, you find yourself in a desperate situation and out of the goodness of God, you find yourself still alive and breathing here this morning. And God is speaking to you through his word, by his spirit, in many of situations of life. What do we do? Do we turn a deaf ear to God? This, is, this was the uh, uh, thing that God highlights in the Old Testament where he says, even after all of this, we, in fact, we read at our prayer meeting yesterday, Psalm uh, 78, where God says, look, well, look at what I did for my people. I opened the Red Sea. I brought them through on dry ground. I gave them meat and manna in the wilderness. And yet, after all of this, they didn't listen to me. They rebelled. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. That's why he says there in Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah 50, uh, 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 55, Come, I like the old King James better there, Ho all ye that thirst. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Verse 3, Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my sure, steadfast love for David. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. What do you find when you turn to the Lord? Compassion. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so don't leave it another day. Jesus is calling. Jesus knocks. Jesus is calling through his word. That if we open, Jesus is using not strictly, you know, the the kind of reformed language that we're used to in terms of, you know, we know that only God can open the heart. But it does, John does tell us in his uh, his, uh, gospel at the beginning, for all those who received him, There is a receiving of Jesus that we are called upon to do. John, of course, goes on later on, a few verses later, to show that they are born not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, but of the will of God. He's showing that there is an interplay there between what God does and what we are called upon ourselves to do. We hear, we believe, we receive. And I hope that that is the case with each one of us here today. That we would not let another Lord's Day go by 
Let not another gospel message go by without hearing the voice of Jesus. To say, Lord Jesus, you have shown me. You have diagnosed my situation for what it is. I see now my wretchedness, my inability, my nakedness. The world might be telling me something about myself. I might believe, be believing something about myself. But Lord, this morning you have shown me what I'm really like. Lord, may you uh, come in to my life. Show me your gospel riches. That I may have that fellowship with you. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That's talking about that intimate relationship now that is ultimately symbolized for us in the Lord's Supper. Where we come on a regular basis and Jesus says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. You can't find more intimate situation than that, can you? But it is it speaks of this lifelong embarking on an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus, of intimate fellowship with him, as 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 a one in one family would sit with another in the same family. Not only that, he says, he who uh, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. So what a place he takes us from. Just like Paul. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. That's where he takes us from. He takes us from spiritual death to the right hand of Jesus. To seat us with him in the heavenly places. God doesn't do anything in half measure, does he? He doesn't. And this is what Jesus is showing and promising the church of Laodicea, though they are, 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 are proverbial for their uh, deadness, their lukewarmness, their, the revulsion that they give to Jesus. And yet, we find Jesus at the conclusion of this letter promising them that he, they will reign with him. Not only will he begin to tolerate them, but they will reign with him. So I earnestly ask you this morning, where do you find yourself? These are the one, these are the words of he who is faithful and true. The Lamb of God, the Son of God. He is calling to you. He is pleading with you to come and to take those riches that he freely provides. Those things which you, unless you have them, you will not stand before this holy God. Don't let the devil pull the wool over your eyes anymore. Don't convince yourself that you're something that you're not. Don't let the world convince you that you're something that you're not. But go to the Word and find the words of He who is faithful and true. Believe those words. And as Paul says to Timothy, words that are able to make you wise unto salvation. Amen.